This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dolph Lundgren, my first guest this week, stumbled his way into acting. Or I guess, if I'm being more descriptive, he kicked, punched, and roundhoused his way into acting. He was born and raised in Sweden, came to the United States on a student visa to study engineering. He was athletic, particularly gifted in martial arts and karate. He is also a handsome, gigantic, steel-eyed, sort of muscle man from space. So it was easy for him to find under-the-table work in New York. He modeled, he worked the doors at nightclubs, he was a bodyguard. His first acting part was a non-speaking role in A View to Kill, a James Bond movie. He was a henchman alongside his girlfriend at the time, Grace Jones. Yes, Grace Jones. We will get into that, I promise. Then shortly after the Bond movie, Dolph Lundgren was in Rocky IV. He was the bad guy, the Russian superfighter, Ivan Drago. What started out as a joke has turned out to be a disaster. Creed appears to be in very serious condition. The man dies. The rest is action movie history. Lundgren played giant, steel-eyed, handsome monster after giant, steel-eyed, handsome monster, one after another after another. Lately, he's had a bit of a renaissance. You might have seen him in the Expendables movies or in Aquaman. Maybe you heard him in one of the Minions movies. This year, Lundgren directed and starred in Wanted Man, an action movie about a border town police officer who takes one last job escorting some witnesses into the United States. It seems like an easy gig, but this is a Dolph Lundgren movie. It leads immediately to kicks, punches, and shootouts. I did want to give a heads up before we get into this interview. Dolph grew up a victim of parental abuse. It's something he's talked about before. We'll discuss it here too. Nothing especially graphic, but the topic does come up. I'm excited to welcome Dolph Lundgren onto the show. Let's get into it. Dolph Lundgren, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. I heard that this most recent film is something that you rewrote. Uh, It was something that you had had for a while and rewrote relatively recently. Um, And one of the things that you changed about the script when you rewrote it was that you made your protagonist a more, let's say, a more complicated character than he had been, which is to say that he starts out this film as a real racist jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why did you do that? I just wanted to have more of a challenge as an actor, and I thought, you know, since the movie is about immigration, I thought, um, you know, I was actually at a party, and I was at a pool party, and there was a guy there, you know, he's a kind of an acquaintance of ours, and um, 
you had a few too many uh, tequila shots and you started going off on immigration and and um about the uh, immigration policies and I and I'd had the script at the time kind of tinkering with the script and I I thought well maybe if the protagonist has this sort of preconceived notion about immigration and immigrants because of his job and because of his friends and you know the environment he lives in then it, it makes it more interesting to see how he's going to react to what happens to him than if it's just a guy who is you know who is who doesn't change and who just stays the same through the whole picture. I imagine that when you came to the United States, it was on an educational visa of some kind? Yeah, I came in first uh, first time I was here on, like, I think it was a J-1, a, a, a student visa. Uh, I came as a, a chemistry student first time, and then I came back doing some research, chemical engineering, and then I came back again, um, you know, in chemical engineering uh, to, to do as a Fulbright scholarship when I was uh, about 23, 24. Do you th- ever think about how your life would have been different if your immigration circumstances had been different? Yeah, I mean, you mean as a, if I would have uh, come from a different type of country you're talking about? or Yeah, or had a, yeah, to had a different opportunity, what, what, if you had not had the opportunity to come to the United States legally. Yeah, when I, I came kind of on a student visa and, and I came to study chemical engineering, but I I knew sort of on a deep level that I wanted to do something else. I didn't know what that was, but I know I wanted to be in America since I was about, I'd say about 13, 14. I, I just had this attraction to, to this country and and I came over and I was 18 the first time and I came back again. I was about 22, 23. Um, yeah, I, I think that... You know, the movie you mentioned is about immigration, and I understand people that want to come here, and I understand, you know, that in some other countries, you know, I'm from Northern Europe, but there are other countries where it's more difficult to to end up to come to America unless you're, you have, a, you know, unless you're privileged or, or you know the right people. What did you imagine America to be when you were a 13-year-old? I just imagined it to have a lot of energy and be exciting and be a place where, you know, you could be a new person, uh, which kind of, I experienced that when I came over uh, when I was 18. You know, first thing I experienced was, um, you know, I think I had a layover in Seattle. I was going to a small place called Pullman, which is in an in interior of Washington State and prairie country. and. And I had a couple of um, hours off in Seattle to to change flights. This is 1976, so Eric travel, you know, was still kind of special um, and um, and unusual. Anyway, I, I would, uh, it was some university professor walked me around, took me to, to get some pancakes or breakfast or something in his car, and and I remember seeing all of these used car lots and. There were vehicles everywhere, and, and, and Boeing went by the Boeing factory, and it was just felt like a, a country full of energy, and, and, um, dynam- and, and it was a dynamic country that I wanted to be part of. When did you start studying? You know, when I was younger, like uh, 9 or 10, I was 
I, I had very good grades, and I, uh, my dad was a, a civil engineer, and my older brother was a chemical engineer. So I had it kind of from um, from our home. I, I knew that, you know, my dad would sit around and do it calculus with my older brother and I would listen in and I'd copy the various, you know, formulas. I didn't know what it was, but I got involved in math kind of young. And so I was good at school up till about 10. And then I, because of the abuse, I started kind of losing my focus. And, um, and then I lost it for a few years. But when I came up north, uh, it took me about a year to start getting back into studying and becoming interested in, in natural sciences and, you know, chemistry, physics, and math. Were you trying to prove something? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I think I was trying to prove something to my dad on a deep level, you know, that I that I was, you know, as smart as he was. Uh, and, you know, on an even deeper level, he always spoken about MIT. That was his favorite school in America. And that's where all the best scientists were and were. And, um, and I ended up getting a scholarship there many years later. So I, I did have that sort of uh, path in my head that I was going to that I was going to excel in academia, you know, to sort of prove to him that I was, that I wasn't as useless as he would. Sometimes, if he got upset, he would beat me, and he would say, he'd tell me how useless I was, and I was never going to become anything. And you know, and and of course, those, you know, when you tell a kid that, you know, you're 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 a kid, it it gets into you on a very deep level. No, so I, I'm still struggling with it to, a little bit, you know, but it's also given me ambition in life. So I think he, you know, even though he didn't mean it, he, he helped me in some ways too. We have to go for a quick break when we return even more with Dolph Lundgren. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dolph Lundgren. He is... Well, he's Dolph Lundgren, the steely muscle man, Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, 
Gunner from The Expendables, He-Man in Masters of the Universe. Earlier this year, he wrote, directed, and starred in the action crime film Wanted Man, which is available to rent and stream now. Let's get into the rest of my conversation with Dolph Lundgren. When did you get serious about martial arts on your body? You know, when I when I was about 10 or 11, you know, I, I already had kind of a... Um, problem with my self-confidence because of my dad and having been beaten. But I mean, the beatings kind of stopped to some degree, I think by the time I was about 12 or 13, because you're getting, you know, um, bigger as uh, you're turning into a young man soon to be rather than a kid that you can beat up. But I mean, when you beat up a a child, a boy who's 12 or 13, it's, it's a bit different. It becomes, you know, more of an assault than just, you know, spanking a child. So at some point in there, I think the beating stopped and I I um, immediately became interested in um, physical culture. And, and I, I, there is a Swedish version of Charles Atlas and, you know, uh, the was the the famous, you know, Atlas kick, the, the bully kick sand in the weakling's face on on the beach and then he buys the course and then he trains and he beats up the the bully like you know a few years later so i there is a there is a swedish version of that i purchased those um letters they would come in the mail like a little booklet every couple of weeks and i would train doing that like when i was about 12 or 13 and then when i came up to uh the northern part of Sweden and, and got away from my dad, uh, a friend of mine sh- one day came, had bought a book called Karate, and it was about martial arts. And there was guys in there who were, you know, in karate uniforms, but also with no shirt or with muscles, breaking wood, hitting heavy bags, lifting weights. And, and I thought, whoa, this... Looks pretty good. I want to do something like that. When you moved to New York, it was it was sort of in a, a an interregnum between your uh, chemical engineering career and what was going to be a Fulbright scholarship at MIT. And correct me if I'm wrong. This was like a six month period that you had planned. Like a it was like a summer break type situation. And you ended up falling into a world that was very different from the University of Sydney, where you'd been studying chemical engineering. Yes, you're right. It was it was a complete 180. What happened was I was in Sydney and I I did some security work on the side with some karate guys I knew because I wasn't making much money. I was in the student's uh, um, scholarship, so I, I couldn't work, but I could work for cash. And, you know, uh, concert security was cash work, so I could do that. I was working a few concerts, and one was Grace Jones, who was a kind of famous singer at the time from the disco era. And uh, and then uh, she left town, and then I was I was back to fighting and studying, and, and then I, I went to Tokyo to train at the main dojo, and she was in Tokyo doing a commercial for Honda, and then we met again, and I ended up going to New York. I had six months off, 
and I was going to start uh, MIT uh, in my Fulbright scholarship in that, that fall. So I came to New York, and uh, this was 1982. Studio 54 had reopened. Uh, Stephen Rebell had been in jail, and uh, now they were out at it again. And I ended up hanging out with Grace, and she, you know, her life was kind of like it ended up being a lot of times sleeping till four. PM and getting up, going to some diner for breakfast around eight or nine, and then staying up all night. Uh, and I ended up living that life with her, you know, even though I was training as well and boxing and doing other things. But I, I was in pretty good shape. So I um, I met Andy Warhol and David Bowie and Michael Jackson, a bunch of people. And I mean, Dolph, and, I, know, I watched <laughs> I watched a documentary about Grace Jones that yeah. came out a few years ago, and here she is in Jamaica with her family. Yes, and you know, like you, she's a literal senior citizen at this point in her life. You know, she's in her this movie. She's in her maybe her mid sixties or something like that. Yeah, and. She is in the most human circumstances she could possibly be in, right? She's in, she's in Jamaica. She's with her family members, you know, her siblings and stuff. Like it is the most normal place she could ever be, and still, her in that world, she seemed like she had beamed down from another planet, like an incredible other planet. <laughs> Like another planet that you would really want to visit. Yeah, you're right. No, she she is an incredible person. She is just one of a kind. Like I, I say, I've said this before. You could you could go into a celebrity restaurant or the Oscars anywhere where the biggest stars of the world are, and if Grace shows up, guess who everybody's going to look at? That must have been a weird sort of thing to fall into, you know. It, yeah, it was strange for me. And what was stranger was that I started to realize that people were kind of checking me out, wondering, like, who's this guy? Like, what's he doing here? Like, you know, and and I I don't know. I Maybe I sucked up some of the energy from her. I don't know. But I started getting interested in, in the creative world. And I, I actually went to a couple acting classes because she was studying. She was going to be in the new Bond movie with um, Roger Moore and Chris Walken. And she was studying with this coach, Warren Robertson, who was like a big deal in New York. And I went to a couple of his classes. And I did some scenes there, whatever it was, some improvs on stage. And I got very emotional. You know, I, I get, he was very smart, Warren. He, he saw... He kind of knew what had happened to me without asking me, and um, and I I felt that wow this it makes me feel good kind of to to be in this space you know and explore these things and um, and at some point he told me um, you know uh, maybe you're a frustrated artist maybe maybe that's you know maybe maybe you should think about you know being in the arts. And, of course, when I was very young, I'd painted a lot and I played music and things like that before the whole thing with my dad got out of hand. But, you know, I, I think meeting him and then meeting Grace and all the people that were, she was around, you know, some amazing artists. And um, a lot of them aren't with us anymore because 
a lot of them died from AIDS and HIV in those days, you know, and unfortunately, you know. Um, but it was it was a fantastic time in, in Manhattan, really. Your first big part, you had a small part in the Roger Moore, James Bond movie that Grace Jones was in, but you had your first big part in Rocky IV, which, you know, still might be the, the biggest part of your career. And this is sort of from the, from Rocky's revenge scene. And it starts with the announcers talking about the final showdown that's going to happen. The Russian towers above the American. It's a true case of David and Goliath here. It's unbelievable the, the, the condition of both men, but the Russian I must break you. And like, one of the things about this movie is Sylvester Stallone at the time uh, and at many points during his career was a huge muscle man, but you're a lot taller than him. You're very tall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's he's not especially tall. He's sort of medium-sized. And the, the physical contrast is like unbelievable. And, you know, usually if a movie star like Sylvester Stallone is in a movie and he's going to be standing toe to toe with a bad guy, they're not going to cast a bad guy that's, you know, eight inches or a foot taller than he is. You know what I mean? You're right. And that was very clever from him because, you know, when I first went up for that role in New York, there was a cattle call with hundreds of people and I came up to this table and there was a woman there and she says, uh, okay, what's your name? How tall are you? And I'm like six four or whatever I said, six five. And she goes, too tall, next. So later when I Sly met me, you know, he had originally thought that, you know, the character should not be that tall. And he should not look like a superhero or Superman. He should look kind of like a, you know, hairy ape or some, something like, you know, more brutal. And then he changed his mind, he said, when he, when he met me. And I, and a lot of times during the shoot, I was, I was wearing lift in my shoe, lifts in my uh, shoes, and also sometimes he put me on a box, because he's, he's realized that the more he builds up the adversary, the more people are gonna think he's gonna lose, and the better it is for the outcome of the fight. It makes him look better actually at the end. So he, you're right. It was, you know, it was very clever by him to do that. Some of the things that you have to do to your body to be a movie star who is famous for their muscular body are not healthy things. Not just, you know, I know that you use steroids sometimes in the 80s and 90s, but also things like um, intentionally dehydrating yourself. Yeah, I did a lot of crazy stuff to look good for, you know, t- for take my shirt off. And, you know, you I was always dehydrating for um, important scenes. So that means you don't drink water for about two days. You drink Diet Coke or coffee and eat mostly protein, no carbs. And now your body starts shredding water. And, and then that dries up your joints as well So and your organs. So obviously... If you're doing big action scenes on top of that, you're putting a lot of strain on your body. So uh, it wasn't healthy at all. Um, and, you know, with the superhero movies, actors en- end up wearing muscle suits. And there are they're they're a few actors that 
have the the real muscles uh, these days, but not as many as back in those days. I think in those days, Arnold and Sly, people like that, myself, you know, you had to you had to keep that really hard regimen to to be able to deliver. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Soundheap with John Luke Roberts is a real podcast made up of fake podcasts. Like, if you had a cupboard in your lower back, what would you keep in it? So I'm going to say mugs. A little yogurt and a spoon. A small handkerchief that was given to me by my grandmother on her deathbed. Maybe some spare honey? I'd keep batteries in it. I'd pretend to be a toy. If I had a cupboard in my lower back, I'd probably fill it with spines. If you had a cupboard in your lower back, what would you keep in it? Doesn't exist. We made it up for Soundheap with John Luke Roberts. An award-winning comedy podcast from Maximum Fun, made up of hundreds of stupid podcasts. Listen and subscribe to Soundheap with John Luke Roberts. Now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor and martial artist Dolph Lundgren. When you were at the height of your acting career, you drank a lot and were absent from your family a lot. Um, I heard you say that you apologized to your children. What led you there? Yeah, I I was in Spain. I got married and my wife hated LA, didn't want to be here. We ended up moving to New York, then to London, and then finally to Spain. This is like when I was like 40 years old. So it's kind of like at the top of my game, I would say, as an actor and as a man, right? Physically, my strength and so forth. And ended up uh, having a family and living in Spain for about 15 years. And... um which was great for the family, and I had a good time, but I was never really happy because I knew I was, I wasn't really getting as much out of my career as I wanted to get. So I ended up drinking too much and having affairs, and and part of it was the situation I was in, and part of it was, as I learned later, call it as um, called escape behavior. So if you have a trauma. Say if you're a frontline soldier or if you've been abused, you're you're trying to escape that, right? And escape could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sexual affairs, it can be violence, but you can't escape really because it's inside you. So it's, you know, there's no way out. You're trying to escape that feeling. So when I came back, started moving back to America because to to for financial reasons and for career reasons, I I started doing therapy here in LA and I, I realized that suddenly it all came back to me. You know, my my dad, what had happened to me, I started connecting the dots in my life. Why have I done all this? Why am I here? What happened to me? Why did I become a fighter? Why have I, why am I drinking too much? Why did I get divorced? And I know 
And then once I, once I felt more comfortable with it myself and it wasn't really running my life anymore, the trauma wasn't running, I wasn't just reacting off things, then I went back to Spain and, and I apologized to my wife and my kids too, you know. And I, I remember I, I said, I had only said half the sentence and then I started crying. So I, I knew that it was the right thing to do. It must have been a scary thing to do. It was scary, but I just wanted them to know that I was sorry for what I'd done, some of the things, and that also I wanted them to know that you can't change, that you can, that nobody's perfect. And because I'm their dad doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it also means that I can, I can recognize that. I can apologize, you know. You've had some serious incidences of cancer. You're in remission right now. Yes. Do you think that the fact that you had gone through this process and were in this process of learning to live with yourself changed how you responded when you found out that you could die? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was closer to myself uh, already. And it was almost like... That became an extension of my treatment became, okay, now I have cancer. So did I get this because I deserve it? Is it my fault? Um, I mean, those were thoughts that would hit me because that's, I had already been blaming myself because of my dad and so forth. I had already, I was close to putting myself down all the time. and, And I think dealing with the cancer and dealing with the treatment and and realizing that everybody can get it and um, you know, no matter what you've done to yourself or not done to yourself and that you had I had to just it was another fight basically. It was another fight like fighting my trauma or becoming a martial arts champion or it was just something I had to really dedicate myself to. But you, yeah, you're, you're right. I think that it was in the cards all along somehow. <laughs> I was going to have to go through. It wasn't over because I did therapy and apologized to my kids. That wasn't the end of it. Before we go, can I ask you about something uh, dumb? Sure. Do you know this scene from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that I'm about to play for you? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is one of my favorite shows, and this is two of the characters brainstorming movie ideas. Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. Okay, all right. All right, so we have our actor. Okay, Okay, that's great. Now we need a really great role for him. Oh, you know what I was thinking? Scientists are cool. What if he's a scientist? Okay. He's wearing like a hot mesh tank top. I like that. Now, does he like fight crime or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fights crime uh, with his brain and his brawn. Dude. Yeah. What if this scientist runs around on all fours? Why would he run on all fours? It's a science experiment with a dog that goes absolutely haywire. Suddenly, he wakes up with the ability to run around like a hound. You know? We're not making the lead of our big budget action movie, Half Dog! No, he's not Half Dog, he's All Dog. 
<laughs> I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I like it. I like the reasoning. Uh, why not? I mean, uh, you know, it sounds like a hell of a comeback. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think you're going to be able to do this when you're 75. No, no. I bet But I think you still got it in you right now. I think so. Yeah, I could do that. I could I just get some knee pads, you know, and yeah, I think I can do it. Um, now it's funny, but I just wanted to say a lot of stuff you, you, you asked about, you know, I, there's a documentary that I've been shooting for a couple of years. So, and, uh, it's going to come and come out this year sometime. So it's interesting. Their interview is kind of moving around all those areas that we, that's the documentary is about. Including the dog thing? The dog thing. Is, I'm going to add that, that come up I'm in the documentary? It. Yeah, okay. I think so. Put that in. Because it. If, it, if the cut is not locked, you're going to want to want some dog <laughs> stuff in there. I love it. Uh, funny well Dolph, Dolph Thanks, Lundgren, I sure appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and uh, it, was, it was really nice to get to do it thanks man yeah Dolph Lundgren his new movie Wanted Man is available to rent and stream now that's the end of another episode of Bullseye Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles California here at my house my new dog, Junior, just ate a canceled check. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Danielle Huesias. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We hope you will follow us there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.